Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ. On the second Sunday night of each month, we at the Franklin Church of Christ devote our lesson to answering questions that have been submitted by members and guests at the Franklin Church. In August of 2005, we had a very special question and answer lesson that was devoted to answering some questions that came up based on a prior lesson. If you've not yet listened to the lesson, The Proverbs on Alcohol, go to our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com and download that lesson and listen to it. After that lesson, several questions were asked. I thought it would just be good to deal with some of those questions. However, there are so many questions to be dealt with regarding the issue of alcohol that we divided this up over two lessons. You're about to hear the first part of the questions and answers regarding alcohol. We're going to be dealing with four questions in this lesson. I encourage you to listen to this one and the second one that you can also download from our website. So open your Bibles and let's learn what God's Word says about wine, strong drink, about intoxicants, and what we as Christians ought to do with them. On the second Sunday night of every month, we've devoted our lesson to dealing with questions and answers from the questions that have been submitted by the members. And this particular month, we've got several questions all on one topic. So many, in fact, that I didn't figure that y'all would want to be here tonight to listen to an hour and a half sermon. Uh, so I broke it in two. Now, I know, of course, that you guys don't care about, don't mind about worshiping God for an hour and a half. It's just listening to me talk for an hour and a half straight would be pretty tedious. So I broke it in two. And basically what I want to deal with today is some questions that have come up since the lesson I, I preached just a few weeks ago. You may remember a few weeks ago we did a lesson called The Proverbs and Alcohol. And some questions have been asked, and so I thought it would be good for us just to take this question and answer Sunday and deal with some of the questions that surround the issue of drinking intoxicating drinks and drinking alcohol. We've got about nine questions that we're going to be dealing with. Four of them this morning, five of them this evening. You'll remember in our lesson that we had just a few weeks ago, the Proverbs on alcohol, our final conclusion came from passages like Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 4, where it says that it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. Or we might look in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 31. Do not look on the wine when it is red. When it... I think that's actually supposed to be Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 31. Let me just double check that real quick. Yes, Proverbs 23 verse 31. I typed that incorrectly up there. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. This is what the proverbialist concluded when the proverbialist took a look at wine and strong drink and intoxicants. He said, it's not for kings to drink it. He said, it's not for us to even look at it, let alone desire it. A completely different conclusion than that drawn by so many modern Christians today. Amazingly enough, there are a lot of people that look at these verses and say that they authorize having a little bit of intoxicating drink in moderation. But when you take a look at what their conclusion was, it was, don't drink it. Don't even look at it. I'm often amazed at the different conclusions that folks have today. Now, there are a lot of passages and a lot of questions that come up surrounding this, and some have been asked, and I'm just going to admit to you that I'm cheating this month just a little bit. Not all the questions that I'm bringing up today have actually been asked of me here over the past couple of weeks. A few of them have. And I also will admit that some of what we're going to be covering over today, I've actually 
handed out in an outline or in outline format that went along with the lesson I preached last year entitled "Is Intoxicating Drink Allowed in Moderation?" So some of it has been handed out in outline form along with the sermon. Some of it's been dealt with, but basically what I thought is, if some questions are being asked, there's probably others that aren't. And if some people are coming to talk to me about particular questions, then I bet there are others who have those questions and they're not asking them. And so I thought it would just be good for us just to go ahead and and just deal with some of these questions and look at them and see what the Bible really says. And in all honesty, I also have to admit there's a certain amount of selfishness in this. I recognize the lesson I preached just a few weeks ago was just about Proverbs. And I realize that there are some folks that, that are going to hear that lesson and they're, in their mind as they walk out, they say, well, that's all well and good from those passages, but I know about this passage over here. And so I thought it might just be good for me to uh, demonstrate that I may be wrong about some of these passages, but I also want to demonstrate I haven't just blindly ignored any of these passages that deal with alcohol in here just to try to uphold some traditional position. As with all questions that I answer, I might be wrong, and if you think I'm wrong, let's talk about that. But I did also want to defend and let you know I, I actually have looked at some of these passages, and I think I understand how it all fits together and still teaches that we should not be drinking intoxicating drinks, period, except for medicinal purposes. I also want to, for those of you who might be upset that anybody would question this issue, point out that nobody who has actually questioned me has questioned me from the standpoint of, I think it's okay for us to drink. I've just had people that have questioned, well, how does this passage fit in with that? And so I just want to clear your minds of that. I mean, there might be somebody here who wants to defend it. I don't know, but nobody who's actually talked to me about it is saying that. So it's just an issue of how do these passages fit together. So that's what we're going to be dealing with today. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Glorious God and Father in heaven, we are amazed and in awe at you and your word and your grace. And we're thankful that you've given us your word that we can study. We realize that in your word are some things that are hard to grasp, that, that we have to study and work and dig. And we pray that you would be with us and help us as we study to learn what you would have us to learn, to practice what you would have us to practice. We pray that we do not limit anything that you have not limited. But at the same time, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us not to allow anything that you have not allowed. Help us to have our hearts and minds open to your word, to understand what you have revealed to us, especially regarding this issue of intoxicating drinks and alcohol. We realize that it's such a major issue today, that it's such a problem, especially for young people. And we pray that you would give us wisdom to handle it rightly, scripturally, and wisely. And Father, we pray that you would guide us through your word in all things. We glorify and honor and praise you. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. The very first question that we want to take a look at is how can we say drinking wine is a sin if the Bible discusses drinking wine in a positive light? For instance, we might take a look at a passage like Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15. In Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15, the psalmist is just talking about some of the blessings that God has provided in the world. He says, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that He may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. There's no doubt that there are passages that look at wine positively. There's no doubt that there are passages that look at drinking wine positively. However, the thing that we have to understand today is we cannot take our modern use of the word wine and just automatically drive it back through all the Scripture. 
Because as we search the Scriptures and we look at how the word wine is used throughout the Bible, we'll find out that the Bible writers did not use the word wine the same way we use the word wine. When we use the word wine, what are we talking about? We're talking about some intoxicating drink. Uh, I mean, that's it. And we, that's the only way we use it. Typically, we're talking about something that's been fermented from grapes, though not always, but it's all, for us, it's always alcoholic and intoxicating. But when we look back in the Scripture, we'll find out that the word wine did not necessarily mean intoxicating. The word wine simply meant the, the juice that came from the grape. If it was fermented, it was intoxicating. If it wasn't fermented, it was still wine. It just wasn't fermented and intoxicating. We recognize then that there are passages like Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29 through 31, Got it right on this slide. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red. We recognize from the context, this is talking about intoxicating wine. It doesn't matter how much grape juice you drink, you're not going to have redness of eyes and sorrows and woes. It's, this is talking about intoxicating, fermented, alcoholic wine. But then there's some other passages that are pretty clear that it's not talking about intoxicating. For instance, consider Jeremiah chapter 40 and verse 10. And I'm only going to use one for sake of time today. A couple more in the outline. But just as far as right now, we'll notice in Jeremiah chapter 40 and verse 10, it says, Now as for me, behold, I'm going to stay at Mizpah to stand for you before the Chaldeans who come to us. But as for you, gather in wine and summer fruit and oil and put them in your storage vessels and live in your cities that you have taken over. He says, gather it in. Well, what's that mean? That they're, get, they're going out to the vines and they're picking the grapes. This wine is still inside the grapes. They're gathering it in. Guess what that means? It's not intoxicating. It's not fermented. It is still inside the grapes. If it's fermenting on the vine, we call that rotting. Okay, it, They're gathering it in because it's still inside the grapes. Not, so there's the word wine, and it does not mean alcohol. It does not mean intoxicating. And so what that means for us is as we look at the Scripture, it is not enough to just find a passage that uses wine in a positive light. It's not enough to just find a passage that uses drinking the wine in a positive light. We've got to find a passage that actually demonstrates drinking intoxicating fermented wine or strong drink in a positive light. And what we have to do is search contextually. I'll just give you an illustration because I know there's a lot of people that say, well, that's just ridiculous. You know, wine is wine. But do you realize there are words that we use the same way today? What about the word cocktail? Now, for us, cocktail simply means a mixture or typically a mixed drink. If I were to go into a restaurant, which, by the way, I wouldn't, but if I were and I ordered a cocktail, most of us would assume that I was ordering something intoxicating and alcoholic. But I was watching TV one day and I saw a bunch of four and five-year-olds drinking Welch's cocktail juice drinks. At Welch's, have you seen those at the store? They have cran grape and cran apple mixed juice drinks and they're called cocktails. See, there's a word that we use today. What about the word cider? Uh, now, you know, if... If you live up in the hills of Kentucky and somebody says, hey, I got some cider out back, what do they mean? We all know what they mean. But if you were coming over to my house and I said, yeah, we've got some apple cider, you realize I'm just talking about some really strong apple juice. 
I mean, we use words that way today. We don't use wine that way, but back in the Bible days, they used wine that way. The same way we use cider, the same way we use cocktails. So what we have to do is we actually have to look at the context. And what does the context say? Is this intoxicating or is it not intoxicating? It's very much like we can look at the Bible, and the Bible talks about all kinds of men. Some men are good, some men are bad, but we only know that by reading the context. And that's the same thing with wine. Some wine is intoxicating, some isn't. We only know by reading the context. Here's one that is not alcoholic. There's only one passage, as far as I know, and you can search, and I'm not, obviously we don't have time for me to go through every passage that I think is clearly intoxicating wine, but in my searches, I've only found one that I think is remotely positive about the drinking of intoxicating drinks. And here's what it says. Uh, Proverbs chapter 31, verses 4 through 6, It's not for kings to drink wine, but give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his trouble no more. Now, a lot of folks have taken a look at this passage and said, you know, if you're depressed and you're having a bad life, you can go find consolation in the bottle. Now, brethren, let me just point out a few things about this verse. If this verse is actually giving permission for drinking if you're depressed, it doesn't give permission for moderate drinking. It gives permission for just getting flat out stone drunk because it talks about forgetting whatever's going on. I think we'd all say, if I'm forgetting what's going on, what am I? I'm drunk. And one of the problems that I think we often have is that we find something that just kind of leans that direction. We want to go along with it without realizing it actually takes us farther than we want to go. This passage, if it's authorizing drink for everybody who's depressed, it's not authorizing that they just have a little every now and again to, to de-stress. It's authorizing that they just get stone cold drunk so they can forget everything. And so we've got to decide what we want. Let me back up. I'll be careful how I say that. We've got to decide what we really believe about drunkenness before we start trying to use these verses to claim it's okay to moderately drink. But I think when we look at this passage, what we find, it's authorized for those who are perishing. And then the rest of those terms, the, bit, the one whose life is bitter, the poverty and the trouble, refer not to issues of depression or uh, material poverty, but actually deal with what's going on in the body. They're perishing. They're dying. They're in pain. They're stricken. And so what we find here is that intoxicating drink was used as a painkiller, it was used for medicinal purposes. And so the only place that I can find where this word is used and it's clearly intoxicating, it's clearly being drunk, what it's being used for is medicinal purposes. And that's it. I also want to point out to you, though, remember, I went ahead and included the first line, it is not for kings to drink wine. This is written under the old law. It was written to Lemuel from his mother. I think Lemuel is a poetic name for Solomon. Solomon's mother said, Solomon's not for kings to drink wine or even desire strong drink. I'd like for us to remember what 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We're royalty. We are kings. And what this points out to us is that if we want to go back to Proverbs chapter 31 and look at how we need to deal with alcohol, that first statement is the one that applies to us. We're kings, and it's not for kings to drink wine. It's not for kings to desire strong drink. Not only that, we're a royal priesthood. You realize even under the law, according to Leviticus, I believe about chapter 10 and verse 9, 
that priests, as they were serving as priests, were never ever allowed to drink wine or strong drink as they were ministering as priests. Leviticus 10.9, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It's a perpetual statute throughout your generation. That's who we are. We are kings for whom it is not to even desire it, and we're priests. We're serving as priests right now. It's not for us to drink that, lest we forget what is decreed, as Proverbs chapter 31, verses 4 through 6 says. Now, let's just go back real quickly to Psalm 104, verse 14 through 15, because I realize that there are going to some people say, but yeah, Edwin, I hear all that, but Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15 talks about wine which makes man's heart glad. I find it interesting we look at Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15, and it talks about wine making the heart glad. And what do we all assume that making the heart glad means? Well, I must be getting tipsy. My heart is becoming glad. Well, I'd like for you to consider a few other verses that talk about our heart being made glad. For instance, Psalm 16 and verse 9. Psalm 16 and verse 9. There the psalmist, beginning in verse 7, says, I will, this is Psalm 16, beginning in verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me, indeed my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me, because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, I am a little tipsy, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Is that what he's saying there? It's talking about God through His counsel, making His heart glad. Our heart being made glad doesn't mean we've gotten drunk. It means that we're happy. And we can be happy and joyous without drinking alcohol. We can look also at Proverbs chapter 27, verse 9 and 11. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 9. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 9. Oil and perfume... Make the heart glad. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. Is he talking about being drunken? Is he talking about being a little tipsy? You know, this is not, again, this is because of our modern uses of words. How often do we talk about people being drunk and we say, well, he's, he's drunk enough that he's a little happy. And so we assume, oh, making the heart glad. That means being happy. That means being tipsy and drunk. Oil and perfume doesn't do that, but it makes our heart glad anyway. Look at verse 11. Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may reply to him who reproaches me. There are other verses we can go to, but here's a wise son. He's saying, be wise, my son, and get me a little drunk? Of course not. He's just pointing out that our heart can be made glad and happy by these other things. And so, the, the fact that Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15 talks about wine which makes the heart glad, it's not talking about wine which makes us tipsy or drunk. And once again, if that is what it's talking about, then we've got to go back to the other one. Well, wait a minute. Is it authorized moderate drinking that doesn't affect us, or is it authorized getting a little drunk? Well, we've just got to make up our minds what we think about drunkenness. If we think that's a sin, then it's going to start affecting some of these verses that we're dealing with. And these verses can't authorize drunkenness. We realize that. We all agree on that. And so we take a look. The Bible mentions wine in a positive light. But that's because the Bible uses wine the way these folks use wine. Sometimes intoxicating, sometimes not. We've got to look at the context to determine that. Next question. How could the ancient people keep the juice from fermenting? One of the sad things that happens in our mind is that our society and our time is basically just pretty arrogant. 
We are just so convinced that we of all times past have just come up with so many amazing things. I mean, look at the computers, look at the cars, look at all the things that we can do that they've never been able to do before. And then we take a look at this process of keeping wine and, and juice from the grapes and other things from fermenting, and we just think that, well, it's just been within the last couple hundred years that we've even been able to figure out how to keep this stuff from fermenting. These guys back then, they were too dumb to do that. They weren't, they weren't as advanced as we are. Now, of course, we will turn around and we'll look at the pyramids and wonder how on earth those dumb people who didn't have computers and Texas Instruments calculators could put the pyramids together and Stonehenge and we take the aqueduct that I believe Hezekiah built in Jerusalem where you know, drilled down through the mountain and then through the side of the mountain and they met and we wonder how on earth did those unadvanced people do that, but yet we're so sure that they couldn't possibly keep juice from fermenting. However, we do have a few quotes from some folks back in this time outside of the Bible that demonstrate that folks did understand exactly how to keep juice of the grape and other fruits and, and, and from the grain and all that, keep it from fermenting. For instance, we have from Marcus Porcius Cato, who lived 234 to 149 B.C. He says, if you wish to have must, which is just grape juice, if you wish to have must all year put grape juice in an amphora, that's a container, a, a jug, Put it in a jug, put it in an amphora, and seal the cork with pitch so that the air can't get into it. Seal the cork with pitch, sink it in a fish pond. After 30 days, take it out. It'll be grape juice for a whole year. So here's the way. We'll seal it off so that the air doesn't get to the, to the yeast. It doesn't uh, activate that yeast. The air's not getting to it. It cools down underneath the ground as it gets below 54 degrees. And so that'll preserve it for an entire year. We also have from Pliny, who lived from 61 A.D. to 113 A.D., he said, the most useful wine, and this is an interesting quote to me, the most useful wine has all its force or strength broken by the filter. Plutarch, who lived 46 to 120 A.D., says, wine is rendered old or feeble in strength when it is frequently filtered. The strength or spirit being thus excluded, the wine neither inflames the brain nor infests the mind and the passions and is much more pleasant to drink. Now, I certainly don't want you to think that the entire uh, group of people who lived back at this time really thought that non-intoxicating wine was much more pleasant to drink. Folks, there were a lot of drunks back then, just like there are today, and there are a lot of folks that, that uh, uh, wanted to drink alcohol and get drunk just like there are today. But here's a fellow that recognized, look, it's much more pleasant if we filter out the yeast, which it's yeast is what's causing the fermentation process. They filter that out get the gluten out of it and the, and the yeast out of it, and it won't ferment. And so they would run it through the filter and filter it off. And they realized it would break the strength of it. But then there's another thing, and this is really interesting. Have you ever heard anybody who is like me that is adamantly opposed to drinking intoxicating drinks, but then when you talk about cooking, they don't mind using a little wine in their cooking or a little cooking sherry? And you wonder, how on earth can that happen? And they'll, what will they say? It cooks out, right? And that's absolutely true. Alcohol has a uh, lower boiling point than water. And so as you're cooking it, you don't even have to be boiling it as far as water temperature to be boiling, and it's going to start cooking out that alcohol because it's going to boil out. Now, this is very interesting. We've got a quote from Virgil who lived from 70 to 19 B.C. This is the guy who wrote the Aeneid. As he's describing home life, he talks about this fella and then his wife. Meanwhile, his spouse over the fire, boils down the liquor of the luscious musk and skims with leaves the tide of the trembling cauldron. What that would do is would leave a pasty, honey-like substance that they would store and then when they wanted to drink it, they'd add water and mix it up. 
and it'd be basically juice. This is an early form of concentrate. What do they do? They boil it down, and it would just get to be this thick, pasty substance. They pour it in a, a jar, and then they drink it later, and it's not intoxicating. These folks knew how to keep grape juice from becoming alcohol. They knew. And so, it shouldn't surprise us then that the Scripture is going to talk about some wine which is intoxicating and bad and some wine which is not intoxicating and good because they knew how to keep it from happening. Just like we do. They, then we may do different processes, but they could make it happen just as well. And so, again, we can't just go to the Scripture and find the word wine and assume it must be intoxicating and therefore it's all right. Question number three. Didn't Jesus turn water to wine in Cana for those who were already drunk in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12? That's, that's an interesting passage because this is almost the proof text for anybody who just wants to kind of throw out an answer and say, see, it's all right for us to have a little wine. I actually did a speech in my Toastmasters club where I was specifically supposed to be talking to high school students and the name of the speech was Please Don't Drink and talked about why all the bad things just for me social and health standpoint, which should keep high school students from drinking, period. And one of the members afterwards came up and said, oh, I got a little worried when I saw the title for your speech because, you know, in my church, we believe that Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine, and so we certainly drink it. And then so, yeah, we'll, just, we'll, we'll just throw this out. And this is just the thing we throw out. This passage is the end-all, be-all. It means that we're all allowed to drink a little wine. Well, let's just take a look at the passage. John chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. Excuse me. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The first problem that folks have is, once again, neglecting the fact that wine does not necessarily mean intoxicating wine. We assume this is intoxicating wine. And then the New American Standard says, when they had drunk freely. Yours, if you have the King James, I think, says, when they were well drunk. Is that what the King James says? Well drunk. Well, we say, oh, they're well drunk. They're drunk. And Jesus is giving them more. And so, see, it's okay for us to have a little bit of wine. And there's a couple of different positions that folks take with this. They either take, one, the position that the folks have been drinking intoxicating wine and they had drunk a lot of it and now they were out, and Jesus makes some more. There are some other folks that modify that a little bit and believe that the wedding feast was intoxicating wine. But because this wine Jesus made was so new, it wasn't intoxicated yet. And because, you know, they, they have that, that problem of, well, I just, well, you just can't have Jesus giving him intoxicating wine. But the problem is, is, is we're back again to... Well, what do we believe about drunkenness? Most of us, as we argue this point, will say, now look, I believe drunkenness is wrong. We know that the Bible says drunkenness is wrong. Well, let's take a look at this passage. Because if this passage actually authorizes the drinking of intoxicating drink, it doesn't authorize it in moderation. It authorizes drinking parties that get us drunk. Because they're drinking a lot of it. 
And so if we're going to use this as our authorization, let's use it for what it really authorizes. But, but we have a problem with that. We know that it can't authorize that because that would contradict, well, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3 that says the time's already passed, sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. By the way, those of you who are in high school and college, let me just tell you this, I learned this after I left college. I wish I had understood this before, but you know what this passage says? It doesn't say it just condemns you drinking at drinking parties. It condemns those parties. And uh, I've been to my fair share of those because when I was in college, this wasn't the position that I held. But I'm just going to tell you what this passage says is those are wrong. And it doesn't say whether it doesn't say it's wrong if you're getting drunk there. It says that drinking parties are wrong. So keggers. Those blasts that, that they have at the dorms or with, at the hotels or wherever, those are just wrong. And you can't get around it. That's what it says. But it says drinking parties are wrong. And so this drunken wedding feast where they had been there for so long, they had drunk so much that they ran out and they were just well drunk is condemned in this passage. Was Jesus involved in a drinking party that would be condemned under New Covenant law? I find that really hard to believe. Further, we can take a look at a passage like Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, that talks about the deeds of the flesh are evident, envying drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Was Jesus at a party surrounded by a whole bunch of drunk people who had drunk a lot of wine, so much that it was all gone now, and then gave them more? Here's my question if He did. Why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we be at the drinking party and give folks more? In fact, why couldn't we be the ones that He gave it to? They would all say that, no, we can't do any of that. Well, if we can't do that, then the passage in John 2 must not show that. What then does it show? Well, once we recognize that wine is not always intoxicating, we have to realize that, look, the drink of the day was juice from the grape. And they called it Oenos. Wine. And they had it there. And the problem was, after you drunk so much of it, the palate was so sated by it that your taste buds were kind of desensitized. And yet this one person hadn't drunk enough that his was desensitized. He was able to tell that this is the good stuff. And it was good because of how it tasted, not because it made him more drunk. In John chapter 2, Jesus did not turn water into intoxicants. He was not at a drunken party. And he was not continuing these folks into more drunkenness. It was a wedding feast where they drank juice because that was what they drank. And he made more because he wasn't getting anybody more drunk. They were just continuing the feast. Otherwise, I mean, if, now if you, if you believe that drunkenness is okay, then you probably don't have a problem with John chapter 2. I mean, it's, but if you're going to say drunkenness is wrong, these are the conclusions that we have to draw. Next question. And this is the last one for this morning, by the way. Didn't Jesus drink so much wine he was accused of being a drunkard? In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19, the Scripture says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19, Jesus is, is, is basically rebuking the people. 
And if we look in the context, he contrasts how the people dealt with John the Baptist versus how they dealt with him. They say, you know, John the Baptist came in and he neither ate nor drank. You remember what John the Baptist ate? Matthew 3, 4 says he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, let me just ask you. If two years ago, when I came in and, and started talking to you guys and I said, really, you know, I live on a diet of locusts and wild honey, what would you all thought of me? Y'all would have thought I was nuts. And y'all would have told the elders, look, let's get somebody a little more reasonable here. That's what John the Baptist was doing. And so folks said, he's got a demon. But Jesus comes in and he drinks wine and he eats bread. And they say, well, he's a wine-bibber and he's a, uh, and he's a glutton. And basically Jesus is condemning these folks. He says, because nothing makes you happy. John the Baptist comes in, he's ascetic, and you think he's got a demon. I come in and I'm, I'm partaking with you and you think you, you accuse me of being a drunk and a glutton. Uh, being a wine-bibber and a glutton. New American Standard here says drunkard. If you've got the King James, it says wine-bibber. Interestingly, if you look at the Vine's Expository Dictionary, the word that's translated drunkard here, or wine-bibber in the King James, just means a wine-drinker. And so let's just back up again a minute. We've got to get rid of our assumptions. One of our major problems, because we've been arguing about this so long, is we assume that this must be alcoholic intoxicating wine. Why do we assume that? Well, because that's the only wine God has a problem with is drinking too much of. I mean, we've, we've got this assumption here. Oh, if he's condemning drinking too much, it must be because it's going to make us drunk. But I want you to think about this. Didn't he condemn eating too much? Does that make us drunk? He condemned eating too much, but that doesn't make us drunk. Why would it surprise us then that he would condemn drinking too much, even if it's not alcoholic or intoxicating? I'll tell you what we find out is that God's limitations are actually much stronger than the ones that we place. God says when He talks about moderation, He's actually talking about things that aren't intoxicating. And so when He condemns being a glutton and a wine-bibber or a wine-drinker, it's not necessarily about being intoxicated. I want you to think about this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 16 through 17. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Now, interestingly, I know somebody's going to say, Oh, see, there it is again. It's drunkenness. It amazes me. You see the word drunk, and we assume that means I'm allowed to have a little bit. But I want you to notice this is talking about eating. It didn't say anything about drinking. So that word drunkenness there isn't talking about being intoxicated. It's talking about having too much. It's talking about gluttony. It's just talking about overindulging in anything. He says, he looks at the land and he says, if your king eats for drunkenness, feasting in the morning, woe to you. Why? Because this king doesn't have control over his physical passions, his physical desires. Blessed is the land whose king understands this. He needs to eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Do you realize, basically what this is, this is the Bible version of Benjamin Franklin's maxim that says we should eat to live, not live to eat. He says, blessed is the land whose king understands that. Because when the king doesn't understand that, he's going to spend all his time partying and feasting. The raptors will sag. The kingdom will be lost for negligence and indolence. In fact, we've been studying Daniel back there. Doesn't that sound like Belshazzar? Those of you who have been in my class? Cyrus is marching on Babylon, and what's he doing? He's partying has no control over physical passions. Now, when we take then a look at the accusation against Jesus, we realize the accusation, despite the unfortunate translation in the New American Standard Version, not necessarily that you're a drunk. 
but rather that you just have no self-control. You're a glutton and a wine drinker, a wine bibber. You have no self-control. But now having recognized all of that, one of the other things we need to realize is, one, just because it mentions wine, it's not necessarily intoxicating. Just because they mentioned drinking wine doesn't mean he was drinking intoxicating wine. And just because they accused him of drinking too much of it doesn't mean he did. In fact, his whole point is, I'm not doing what you've accused me of. Just as his whole point was with John the Baptist, John the Baptist didn't have a demon just because he wasn't eating and drinking. Jesus didn't drink so much wine he was accused of being a wine bibber. These people didn't want to listen to him, and so they were rooting around and digging to find something to accuse him with. That's the whole point. Jesus was not a drunk, and he did not drink so much wine that they just thought he was. They were making up false accusations so that they wouldn't have to listen to his teaching, just like they made up false accusations against John the Baptist so they wouldn't have to listen to his teaching. Those are the questions for this morning. I hope they've been helpful. We've got five more that we're going to be dealing with tonight. We're going to talk about the, the passage that talks about new wine and old wineskins. Why would Jesus use that as an illustration if it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's wrong to drink it? Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach's sake in, in 1 Timothy. What about the qualifications for elders and deacons? A lot of people make a big deal. You know, he told the elders don't be given to wine. He told the deacons don't be given to much wine. Uh, why would he say that to the elders if, if nobody's allowed to drink any of it anyway is, what, is the question. Romans 14.21 says that uh, about it puts drinking wine on the same level of eating meats there. That means it's an issue of Christian liberty. And of course, I won't drink that one in front of you because I know you have conscience against it, but you really shouldn't say that I can't drink in the privacy of my own home. That's the, the question we're going to be dealing with there. And then the final question we're going to be dealing with tonight is there's a lot of folks, no matter how much you say this, when you point out the reason God said don't drink it is because it impairs your judgment. Well, but it doesn't impair mine, so I'm not held to that same standard. I can hold my liquor. And so we're going to be dealing with those questions tonight. So I invite you to come back this evening as, as we take a look at uh, the rest of this issue of intoxicants. I hope this first part of the questions and answers on intoxicating drinking alcohol has been helpful to you. Don't forget, go to our website, download Lesson 2. That's the August Questions and Answers Part 2. That lesson's also answering several questions about alcohol and intoxicating drink. If you have any more questions about intoxicating drink or about anything else that we teach at the Franklin Church or just about the church itself, please give us a call at 615-794-2359. You can also go to our website and download not only that second lesson and this two-part lesson on alcohol, but numerous other lessons that we have. Again, that website is Franklin Church of Christ. Dot com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.